did you hear that psalm? That has got to be one of the most ridiculous psalms in the Psalter. If, you, if you've ever asked, I'm sure you've asked this sort of question, does God protect his people? Well, sometimes people will answer that question. There's a famous book years ago, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And that was written by a non-Christian who basically said, well, God would if he could, but he can't, so he won't. He didn't think God was very powerful. So he just said, well, yeah, bad things happen because God isn't that strong. That's one option when you look out and see that there are God's people or good people who encounter evil. Another option, is, which is, um, which I have heard myself from, um, a, a, I went to a conference of a prosperity gospel televangelist, health wealth type guy. And he, I remember very distinctly, um, I was in college, so I didn't know much, so I went to this conference. And he preached on Psalm 91. And he preached that if you have faith, this will be true of you. That all evil will be gone. That you will be out of trouble. And that all the health and wealth that this psalm says you will get will be yours. And that led into this grand sort of show that he was putting on. And so that's another option is to say, well, this is a promise. And it's in God's Bible, God's Word, so... Let's take it on face value, and if we just believe a little bit more and a little bit harder, then we're going to get it. But that's not where we're going to go. Because there is another option, which is hinted to us in the temptation. Which, if you know, well, before we go there, let's pray. God, we do need your Spirit to lead us. We do need your Spirit to make your Word come alive. Even being reminded of false ways to read your word. Uh, We know that uh, this is your revelation of who you are and what you call us to do and to be. But our sin is so deep that we need you to show us how to interpret and apply it. So we ask that you would speak to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do want to dig down and, and get, get sort of down and dirty into this psalm because it's going to take some work for us to understand if we don't fall into one of those options. Because on first reading, I think it's pretty clear that there seem to be amazingly good and earthly promises to God's people. That you will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, that you will be delivered from all evil, that under his wings you will find refuge, you will not fear, a thousand may fall at your side. You can imagine all these, it's like this military language where nothing will come near you. You will tread on the lion and the adder or the cobra. You will be powerful and a conqueror. That's what it seems to be saying, doesn't it? But even if we were to look at this psalm itself a little bit deeper, we see Well, in 15, it says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. This is God speaking. I will be with him in trouble. So even there, we have a sense, well, there's going to be a place where he needs to call on him. There's going to be a place where God's people is going to be in trouble. So it's not perfectly hunky-dory. 
And of course, many other psalms talk about the suffering and the struggles of God's people. And so even within the book of Psalms themselves, we can't read Psalm 91 saying some sort of naive uh, promise that those who are near God will have a comfortable, perfect life with no evil that will befall them. But, but before we, that, that's sort of the, the obvious reading, but I want to, um, we're going to come back to that in more detail, but I want us to actually look at what Jesus does. Because in the temptation, that was our New Testament reading in Matthew 4, uh, Satan quotes this psalm, which is quite amazing. Just to remind you, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came. And then the second question in Matthew is, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. For it's written, and he quotes Psalm 91. The devil, the personal being and epitome of all evil, quotes Scripture. Let's, just taking that fact alone is pretty amazing. Throughout the Gospels, we see that the demons know who Jesus is. They call him the Son of God. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us, one, that head knowledge is never going to be enough. They had the right head knowledge. Satan knew the Word. He knew the Scripture. So surely that can't be enough. They weren't willing to submit. They weren't willing to worship God, to use that knowledge the way it was intended. But they had it. They had this head knowledge. It also shows us that a superficial reading of Scripture is never going to give us enough. Because if you read Psalm 91, it seems like you could use it the way Satan used it. It says, His, your, God's angels will protect you. They'll hold you up. So, of course, it's going to be true. Let's just go jump off. But we have to go so much deeper. And Jesus doesn't take Satan's bait. And he says, again, it is written... You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So I'm gonna, I want to sort of follow this chain, and then we're going to come back to Psalm 91 and try to figure out what, what it really means for us. So Jesus quotes him back from Deuteronomy 6. Quotes him back in Moses' uh, speech to Israel, where after he has just said, uh, you will be led into the land, you, will, you are commanded to worship the Lord your God only. When you get into this amazing land flowing with milk and honey, do not be tempted to say, look at all that I have made, but remember that God humbled you in the wilderness, that God met you. And then he says, therefore, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's the part that Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy 7. But it says, like you did at Massah. So now we've got to trace another one, all right? So it's okay if we, if we quiz you after and you can't remember every verse, it's all right. But Moses is talking about now even an earlier passage back in Exodus 17, when it is said that the Israelites put the Lord their God to the test. And what happens in Exodus 17 is that's literally two chapters after they have been brought out of Egypt. This, they've had this defining moment of their country that... that God 
redeems them out of slavery, out of oppression, through the Red Sea, and immediately they don't like the food. They don't like the food and drink. They don't like the living conditions. And they start to complain and grumble and quarrel. And it's named after this place, Massa. It's named as the place where they tested the Lord. So when Jesus says, no, I'm not going to jump off the temple to put, because I'm not going to put the Lord your God to the test, what does he mean by test there? He means something a little bit more than just let me see if this promise is true. Oh, that, that's, that's pretty close. This is almost the syn- synonymous with disobeying. Why would it be disobeying to jump off the temple and see if God's promise is true? Why would it be akin to what Israel did when they were wandering in the wilderness and then started grumbling and complaining against God? Why don't you just send us back to Egypt? Because this place is disgusting. Well, it seems like what Jesus is trying to say about he will not put the Lord your God to the test is because if he, if he jumps off the temple hoping that Psalm 91 is true, he has just turned a promise into a game. He's turned a promise into, I am going to make sure that, God, you come to me on my terms because I'm not quite sure that promise going to hold. You see what happens there that let's say he jumps off the temple and angels do provide as Psalm 91 seems to say. If that's you and you're trying to test whether Psalm 91 is is right, what are you going to do next? You're going to find a bigger building to jump off. You're going to keep testing to make sure that God works according to his good. You've just turned this promise away from who God is about yourself. You've made it about God needs to come to me on my terms or else I'm not going to trust him. I'm not going to come to him. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He he seems to obviously think that Psalm 91 is true. But the question for us is how? How is Psalm 91 true? So if we come back to Psalm 91, what happens in the temptation is that it seems like Jesus and Satan actually agree that Psalm 91 is messianic. It's about the Son of God. So Satan quotes it and says, if you are the Son of God, let me quote you a passage that should apply to you. Jesus doesn't say, no, that doesn't apply to me. And he doesn't say, no, I came. He doesn't doesn't really come to Satan and argue with him on his own terms at all. He doesn't let Satan set the terms of the debate. And so, if Jesus assumes that it's true and says, no, but I'm not going to quarrel and grumble and put the Lord to the test, I'm not going to question the promise, what then do we do with Psalm 91? How is it true? When is it true? Because in Jesus' own life, it's very clear that it's not true. In the Incarnation, Psalm 91, if it's meant to be about the Son of God, it's not about him there, right? Because what happens in Jesus' first coming? In the incarnation, lots of evil befalls him. He says, when he gets gets arrested, he says, I could call down a bunch of angels and cast these these guys away from me and not be arrested and crucified, but he doesn't do it. 
He doesn't do it. Why isn't Psalm 91 holding true for Jesus? Very obviously not holding true for Jesus. But it does hold true when? After the resurrection. Doesn't it hold true now for Jesus? Doesn't it hold true that Jesus is the perfect human who has been raised to a perfect human body, spiritual body, that he has been ascended to the right hand of God, the Father, in power and control? Presumably, this psalm is very much true of him right now because he will not be delivered from the snare. He, he will not suffer under the snare of any fowler. He is in God's immediate presence as a human. So he can say this as the Son of God and Son of Man and say, this is true of me, Jesus in heaven. So that's true of the, of the ascended one. Now, let me read a passage from Hebrews 2 to help us make the bridge to what this means for us. Hebrews 2 talks about Jesus, what he did, and where he is now. It says that God put everything in subjection to him, meaning Jesus. He left nothing outside of control, his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I would encourage you to read Hebrews 2 later today. Because he goes on and talks about what we get to taste now in Jesus. Because Jesus took on flesh and blood. Because he partook our life. We now get to take his life. We now get to partake in his life. And what that means is, his first coming, Psalm 91, really doesn't apply. In the sense that the first reading would give it to us. So that it would be applied to us. So that it would become true of us. That we could actually read Psalm 91 with some confidence. And we could read Psalm 91 and say, yes, this is true. But that still doesn't answer all our questions. Because it still doesn't seem really that true. If we're honest, this doesn't explain most of our lives, does it? No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. The hands of angels bearing you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Oh, if Colleen was here, who knows Colleen? She literally just struck her foot against a stone and broke it. That would have been funny. Uh, Sorry, not funny, you know, like a good sermon illustration. So the question is, though, if it's true of Jesus now in heaven, so that Psalm 91 could be true of us, okay, now how? Now how is it true of us? Well, it's true of us by faith. It's true of us in every way that we are connected to Christ. And how are we connected to Christ? Connected to him now by faith. Spiritually, we are united to him. We're told that our heart is in heaven. That's where our treasure is. 
Now, let me, let me try to convince you, and, and let's think about this some more. In Luke 21, we get a very similar promise that will help us. This is Jesus talking about um, the suffering and persecution that his disciples are going to encounter. And he says, it's one of these apocalyptic images, and he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And you will be delivered over, and you will be persecuted. And even your family will turn you over. You'll be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So, did you hear hear that? Because it should sound contradictory. He just said, you will be hated, you will be delivered up, you, uh, uh, yeah, you'll be brought before kings and governors. You'll be sent to prison. They will lay their hands on you. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Doesn't it seem to be saying what Jesus says over and over, that if you lose your life, you will save it? That in this age of persecution and tribulation, you will be hated, but you will gain your life, your soul, who you are. That your truest identity, if you are in Christ, your truest identity is in Him. That you are tethered to Him with an unbroken chain. Even though we don't see it now, we are told we are tethered to Him. That having been justified, we will be sanctified. And having been sanctified, glorified. We are united to Christ, and there's nothing that's going to break that chain. That who you are really is in heaven, though we don't see it yet. So that we can come back to Psalm 91 and say, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will abide in His shadow, and I will say my refuge in my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is really just another way to think of we are in God's kingdom now, not yet. We are in God's kingdom already. The Messiah came already, but he hasn't come fully. He hasn't done all his work yet. He's not done working. There's going to be a second coming. And so in between these two, it doesn't look fully like he's come. But it does look partly. 2 Corinthians 6 is a great example of this. This explains what life is supposed to be like after Jesus' first coming until Jesus' second coming. Paul celebrates, he quotes Isaiah and celebrates that now is the day of salvation. The one that Israel had been waiting for for hundreds of years finally had come in Christ. And Paul is saying, don't you realize that's now. That's now. Our day of salvation has come But then he says, therefore, our life commends the fact that God's kingdom has come by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, lots of suffering. But also by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. Now, some of you may think that when I said 
yes, Psalm 91 is true of you, but now only by faith. Some of you may have thought or felt like that was kind of a cop-out. Like, here he goes, hedging his bet, saying, yeah, it's kind of true, kind of not true. I think part of that is because we don't realize the goodness of what purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and the power of God. We don't realize just how good those things are. We don't realize the fact that he ends this verse by saying, it seems as if he's living as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. It doesn't look by sight like God's king has come, but Paul is experiencing it in that way. He's experiencing it in not in a way that he's waiting around more, wondering what's going to happen in the future. He already knows what's going to happen in the future. Yada, 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 Jesus comes back and makes everything perfect. Or yada, 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 I go to heaven and meet my creator. Can you go back to uh, the first slide? Our meditation I put up from uh, Westminster, chapter 20, one of, uh, one of the most beautiful passages, I think, in the confession. And this gets at this question of what exactly is so good about the life we get to have now by faith. So this is the liberty or the freedom that Christ has purchased. For believers, under the gospel, consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin. If you feel guilty and you're a Christian, remind yourself of the cross. You've been freed from guilt. It should no longer be a part of the Christian life. The condemning wrath longer condemned. There is now no condemnation. The curse of the moral law. We're still trying to pursue the moral law. We're still trying to love our neighbor as ourselves. But the curse of disobeying it wiped out on Christ. And in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin. You no longer serve sin. Sin is not your master. This is not your identity. You have a new master a good one. Freed from the evil of afflictions. Not freed from afflictions. That's Jesus in heaven, the perfect human. That's where we're going to. But we are freed from their evil. In the same way, we are freed from the sting of death. We're still going to die unless he comes back. But we're freed from its sting because we know it lies. It lies and doesn't tell us the truth. It says that Satan wins and he doesn't. It says that our life ends, and it doesn't. The victory of the grave and everlasting damnation is also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. So if we are to take Psalm 91, but to try and take it and then live our life not testing God, but still to take it as true, what would that mean? If we take it as a promise, I think we we try to trust that it's true. In the same way that in a relationship, and especially in a marriage, if you've been to a wedding, the vows that they say really are about the future, not the present. They're going to need those vows in the future. And they're going to cling to their relationship because they want to experience how those vows are real. 
and true. In the same way now, we know where we're headed. We know that death will not win. We know that the afflictions that we undergo will not win. But we want to experience how that is true more and more. It becomes this way that we we cling to God and say, you tell me that no evil will win. It feels like this thing that I'm going through is winning. It feels like I'm the underdog. Lord, show me. Show me how this is true. Show me how I can experience the truth of that, that I can know that I am one with Christ in heaven. Show me, just in the way that Revelation 21 tells us, what it's going to be like by sight. That God will dwell with us. That we will be His people. He will be our God. That He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Show me, Lord, in my tears now why this is not going to be my life. Why this is not going to be who I am. It's not who I am now. My tears don't define me. My sin doesn't define me. Psalm 91 becomes more and more true. More and more our experience, because we know it's Jesus' experience now, who we are connected to. So this doesn't just mean wait till heaven and then you'll really get it. Although that's part of it. We do need to meditate on the future life where we're going. Something we don't do enough, for sure. Especially in comparison to Christians in the past. This is where we're going. We'll be able to say Psalm 91 without any qualifications in heaven. But now we can meditate on it. We can meditate on this being our core identity. And I think that's so hard for us, especially in the West and especially those who are young, because our life right now seems pretty good. And anything that gets in the way of our life right now seems devastating. It seems overwhelming. It seems like it's going to define us, doesn't it? It seems so hard to imagine losing things in our lives because most of us think we're invincible. Or we have that general posture. That's our immediate way we we handle ourselves. We have a right to comfort. We have a right to our dreams. And so it becomes so hard to think that this is not really who I am. Well, one way to fight that is to remind us that Remind us of all the things that are going to fade. When we're fully experiencing 91, Psalm 91, that, that the, the powers of this world are not as powerful as we think they're going to fade. Rome thought it would never end. It thought it was eternal. And now we laugh. The great causes of our anxiety, whatever it may be, I think... Um, We seem to give evil in our life so much power. And think about what you're struggling with right now. The way that you handle it. We give it so much power either either by acting as if we are crushed underneath it. We act like we can't get up. We act like this is who we will be forever and ever, and the evil is going to win. It doesn't have that power. It doesn't have that power because Psalm 91 is true true of Jesus now, and you're experiencing it now by faith. 
We may also uh, give it so much power by focusing on it so much. That that's the only thing we pray about. That's the only thing we think about. As if we have to defeat it right now. As if all of Psalm 91 has to be true right now, and all of a sudden we're back to being like that prosperity gospel preacher I heard, that this is going to be true now. We're going to have heaven now. We're not given any promise like that. That's simply not the promise we're given. Because we follow Christ crucified. We pursue him in his suffering and death. Because we know the power of his resurrection that we are tethered to. That we are being brought to. So I would encourage you to read Psalm 91 over and over. Try to see it as your, not your birthright. Not, not, this is not your right as you are a human or a Yale or whatever it may be. You don't have an entitlement to this. But this is your new birthright. This is your birthright having been made new in Christ. You are a new creation. You experience it now so fully by faith, by experiencing these sorts of things that you can look death and afflictions in the face and say, I've been freed from that evil. Jesus has conquered. And I'm one step behind, but I'm on the way. I am bound to the promised land that Psalm tells us. So let's take a moment, pray, reflect, think how we would react with Psalm 91 in our pocket. Who and in Christ, Psalm 91 is true of us. Let's take a moment and pray.